0: It may be invisible to some or ever-present to others, but trauma entangles us all. Welcome to Traumatize, brought to you by Network for Victim Recovery of D.C. Traumatize is a podcast that creates space and conversations to untangle the societal knots that keep us from addressing trauma after crime. For you, we want this podcast to be an experience, one where you leave understanding how you can be a crossing point to minimize the deeply painful and costly consequences of trauma, no matter who you are.
1: Welcome back to Traumatize, where we believe trauma is a common thread of the human connection. I'm Bridget Stumpf, and as always, I'm here with my co-host. Howdy. Lindsay Silverberg.
2: Well, y'all, we made it to the last episode of the season. We wanted to offer a nice bookend and just finish how we started, which is closing out with just the two of us talking about what this process has been like, what our hopes are and our dreams, and, of course, what you can expect from us
1: next. Of course, we'll be doing some expectation setting as we think about best practices and centering trauma-informed relationships and care and those we intersect with. Before we dive in a little bit into that discussion... We're just going to kind of chat. That's where Lindsay and I find our sweet spot is is just chatting it up. Lindsay, how has this podcast experience, we're coming up on number eight, this is number eight of season one, hopefully many more to come, but how has it been for you?
2: I think it's been fascinating. We've touched on a lot of topics and had the opportunity to talk to a lot of different people about the ways in which trauma shows up. I don't know. I mean, it's just been, it's been interesting. It's been making me think a lot more about all of the ways that trauma shows up. Before we started recording, I was sharing a story with Bridget about a kid in my neighborhood who I was using and have been trying to channel the question about, like, what happened to him, not why is he the way he is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think even for us, even talking about this all the time and knowing about it, it's still... Having the opportunity to sort of think about all the different ways that trauma impacts people's lives and how they might show up in a space yeah, um, has been really nice and eye-opening
1: and given us the opportunity to talk about something we're passionate about. Yeah. I love having the sort of academic concept of neurobiology of trauma. Like you and I can get into that and we did a training this week for investigators. We did a few, actually. We've done quite a bit. Um, It's been a busy time, busy summer, but I really do feel like the podcast has given us an opportunity to see and think about the complexity of how trauma shows up in everyday life, um, or at least give people the benefit of questioning what might they be carrying that we don't see or that our brain is filling in gaps to missing information that we don't have.
2: Absolutely. How has the podcast been for you?
1: Well, I am just living the dream here. No, I've I've genuinely uh, really enjoyed bringing in so many different folks from other perspectives and sectors, right, that are showing up pretty directly and like holding trauma spaces with individuals who've been impacted. I think for me, um, there have been so many nuggets, but one key takeaway was, in that second episode uh, with Reese, you know she talks about how trauma is honestly so common and also like misunderstood and unique, and, and it's just like the complexity. I know you'll probably talk about the otters, but the complexity in that has been, like you said, eye-opening and really beautiful for me. I think I've been thinking more about how it's really all around us and through us in this connection that we have uh, with with trauma and suffering and really in the places where we're often in proximity to it. And I have a friend who I won't name, but he's a funny guy and he he's similar to how I mentioned my husband's like, "Oh, trauma, people don't want to talk about that." It's sure. true. That it is, is very true. Like we've talked about this natural distancing that our society has created with not just trauma, but any sort of perceived experience where you might um Received, have emotions. Have emotions, be judged for those, yeah. um, you know, all, all of that. And he described, um, and we're we're just, like, sitting around talking about the podcast a little bit and how trauma impacts us, like, short-term, long-term. And he's like, so you're saying it's, like, a ice sculpture. And I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, so when, when you come into this world, you're, like, the big block of ice <laughs> and someone's got this, like, big chainsaw and, you know, they're kind of carving out the, the starting point. And that's who we are, but going through life and trauma is like the chiseling. It's the experiences that we have that come in and sort of detail and change mm. sometimes per- permanently, but not always. Right. Like right. ladies, when we were talking about this, you're like ice melts. Like it, it can be like, we can go in and who we are and what we've experienced um, can be shifted and, and changed based on not only the support structures we have treatments, but, how we feel others are holding and validating that experience with us actually is a part of the chiseling process and mm-hmm. fine tuning like the details of ultimately how we experience mm-hmm. our lives. And so for me, I've been thinking since we started this podcast lens about gosh, we we did our first episode in May. I think we really started recording about maybe a month before that if I'm remembering correctly. And since starting it and also since it's come out there have been these disclosures just like we talked about in that first episode of the ram- uh, random um woman at Chiffy Loop that yes. like disclosed to me one time yes where people have heard an episode or heard a- us preparing or uh, we've been talking to in our lives about making you know this come to life and it has just so solidified for me how common the experience of knowing trauma is rooted in just being human. I have a couple examples. Do you have any that stand out to you that have kind of come up in your life? No, hit me with yours. So the obvious one, right, is just like what your staff carry daily, like sure. working and walking with survivors of, of trauma and uh, mainly as a result of violence um, and navigating the systems. We've talked a little bit about um, systemic oppressions and and how those can both compound um, trauma. But when they're set up well in a trauma-informed way, they can really mitigate those those consequences. I've been thinking about um, a colleague that shared, you know, what it's like to live as a child witness of um, domestic violence. And even just kids that have divorced parents, what it's like as a child to watch or observe maybe – unhealthy on one end of the spectrum or even toxic and abusive on the other end, um, in the relationships and models they have in their life. I thought a lot, Lindsay, about our conversation with Mona and you, like, I feel like I know you so well, right? I mean, not nearly as well as you do, but when you talked about losing your dad and being at this really young foundational moment in your life, the value of those support structures, yeah that you had around you. I'm like, dang, I never thought like it really reshaped like how I was thinking about when we go through grief and loss. Mm-hmm. Um,
2: and it the interesting thing on the flip side, right, is there were folks that I had known my entire life that I thought would show up in a different way. And this is not a judgment of them, right? But when we talk about the ways in which your support systems show up in trauma, they weren't able to be there for me for whatever that reason was. And it fractured our relationship. Like I no longer have contact with them. And I'm okay with that. And I don't blame them maybe the way I did when I was 20 yeah, um, and was angry about the loss. But it is really interesting about what an impact, negative or positive, a support system can have in your life. And what a difference it can make to have those people to turn to, even oh. just one person.
1: Yeah. No, it's so true. Um, I'm thinking about um Why? People don't know how to show up when you're going through like one of the hardest moments of your life, especially when they love you and care about you. And in my own experiences, you know, I shared this in one of the episodes when we lost joy and that's kind of a, we'll talk about the different types of loss, right? Because with your dad, you went through an actual physical loss, also psychosocial loss, right? Sure. Loss of hopes and dreams, your dad being there at your wedding, like all all of these, meeting your kids. Yeah. 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 And you have to like hold both of those. But then I also think about like these disenfranchised losses, you know, like when we're going through a loss that people don't know about. You know, I was just talking to someone this morning that had gone through a miscarriage and like carrying that, you know, without folks around you necessarily knowing when you show up at work or, Mm -hmm. and, you know, my own loss. What I learned in that is often people don't show up because they don't have the tools and the skills and the ability to know how. And they're so worried. That they're gonna say or do something that makes you realize you've lost your dad, and you're right. like, "Dude, I know. I'm very, aware. <laughs> very aware of." But the really, it's yeah. so fear based, and and what's so interesting in that feedback loop, we go through something traumatic. The people we love and need feel like they're going to comp like cause make something it make it worse, so they do nothing, and that actually isolates us from feeling supported to address the original trauma. It's all about the fear in the place in the brain that's responsible for what makes us feel afraid yeah and i
2: i mean there needs to be some sort of life course and right how, how to deal with it how to be resilient i mean we talk so much in in the podcast about the different places that trauma can show up or even just hardship right i mean not even not everything is a traumatic event but everybody's going to experience hardship and using trauma-informed principles and trauma-informed responses can teach us how to connect on a more human level. I mean, I think about when you lost joy, the reason that I felt like I could talk to you about it or ask you about it was because I know what it felt like to feel alone in a moment where like I lost my dad,
1: right? Yeah. Yeah. And and that's the complexity, right? Is like, we talk all the time about Knowing that feeling, yeah, means you've had this really, really life changing, altering experience. That, yeah, would you want to? Would you want it to have gone differently? Sure, of course. Now that you've had it, you have this really rare ability to show up for people in their deepest, darkest moments in a way that, like, no one else may be able to make them feel understood.
2: Yeah, and you know, our favorite person. Brene Brown always talks about in this video that we've probably shown 600 times in trainings, but about the difference between sympathy versus empathy, right? And she has this fantastic saying in it where it's rarely what you say is going to make a difference, right? You can't solve or fix something that somebody's experienced. What you can do is show up for them. And I was just telling Bridget before we started recording that with adult friendships, because I find adult friendships fascinating, that a lot of the research behind it, which there's actual research, is that it's hours. It's time. And that like the most impactful thing you can do in adult friendships is just spend time together. It's not about like what you say or how you are. It's the same often when hardship and trauma happens.
1: Ah, oh, it's such a good point. And I I love that you pointed out too that these principles of of just centering a trauma-informed perspective and awareness can be helpful in like navigating day-to-day when it's just stress and not necessarily like a traumatic stress related to, you know, an event that's threatening, dangerous, and out of our control. I think that's important. And when I think about that empathy video, I'm like, man, you're right. Let's just do a life course. That's like how to like, how to be space. a person, right? yes, Like how to how to show up um in really hard moments with folks that doesn't cause more harm because you're actually afraid of causing harm so you do nothing. Yeah. And during the the recording of the podcast when we were jumping into it, I had an opportunity to go visit one of my very best friends who's uh, from my home state back in Idaho and we were hanging out and ended up having a conversation um in a broader group context. Uh, with someone who had experienced really severe bullying, and talked about that in the context, like had really good language and and had really done some self work to understand, like I had a trauma experience related to what happened to me, and so sometimes I think we do talk about traumatic stress as a result of events as these really big things in our work, right? Whether that's sexual assault, racism. We talk about it in death and loss and grief, but we don't often think about some of those smaller moments. And I know Reese kind of sprinkled those in too of peer isolation, Mm -hmm. bullying, like the little moments of our lives. Um, Having a surgery at a very young age, like that's been known to cause trauma in kids, right? Threatening, dangerous out of their control, separated Mm -hmm. from mom and dad, sedated, whatever it looks like. Those can also be moments where we've all either experienced or know someone who has, I think, about poverty, and how poverty impacts all of our access to opportunities like education, um, good medical care, equitable <laughs> medical care, and power and abuse of oppression. And this often shows up when we think about organizations and community structures towards liberation, right? Like, yeah. I often think organizations sometimes um, can be, oh, we're at like the epicenter of showing up yeah, for mean, the folks that do the work.
2: When you think about, Where do people spend the vast majority of their time? It's at work, right? And the ways in which that can impact how the people who, the staff, right, are able to show up. I think about this so much with the advocates and attorneys in that work at NVRDC. Like, we have had to be very thoughtful. um, And they've been, the staff have been so amazing about like, really pushing us as an organization to make sure that we are being trauma informed in our responses like down to what some might consider small things and i can't remember if i've talked about this before but like sometimes not calling meetings check-ins because there's an association with that about how that was used in a former organization that a person worked for that would when they'd get in trouble or having the ability for people to actually take off time to take care of themselves for mental health i mean some of these are big, some of these are small, but I think organizations have a responsibility and an opportunity to really support people fully in a way that, you know, historically in the last couple of generations, that's not been a value point.
1: Yeah. I just think too about um, Chris, the director of advocacy, you know, really centers a lot of these principles. Just thinking about the examples you were using and holding a processing space with like current events that people are Trying to navigate through the world with. And it takes time, right? As an organization. And we're really lucky to have like a team, not only a team that thinks about this, but we actually like applied to host a project that specifically focuses on vicarious trauma of those in the sexual assault crisis continuum. And that's been a really thoughtful way to like keep us accountable to this internal value of sustaining the passion of our staff, which I'm really grateful for. But I do think most organizations, you don't have to be centered in like community impact work to care about having a trauma-informed culture. I mean, I think if my bottom line is I want my staff to be productive, I want them being able to show up fully, do their best work, be engaged, all the markers we look for and sort of like performance and metrics we know are tied to clarity of my role. I understand how my impact is contributing to the bottom line. And then my citizenship behaviors where I go above and beyond those show up because I can bring my full self to, to right. the work, right? Thinking about inclusion and belonging and what does that mean? Well, what that means from my perspective is if you don't have a trauma-informed workplace, people aren't always going to be able to show up in their full selves.
2: Yeah. I mean, if you're actively causing harm, there's entire TikTok accounts about <laughs> corporate America and the ways in which they actively cause harm to people, right? And how people aren't able to show up. I actually was just having this Fascinating conversation with somebody about Gen Z, so the
1: generation below you and I. I don't claim being a millennial, you know that. Well, I'm older than you, Lindsay.
2: (laughs) You're not a You're not a Gen Xer. You You unfortunately are a millennial. You know, we might be elder millennials, but uh, that's right.
1: And how can we say chuggy and maybe cut it? I gotta do a (laughs) shout out to Ryan right now. Okay, so chuggy. Yeah, and the conversation I was
2: having with this person was about a Gen Z-er setting a boundary about how they weren't going to answer work emails after five because their work day ended at five. And, you know, this is a really light example of like, well, maybe the tone of the email could have been different, whatever. I'm not really saying that, but that this, the generation below us has really values these sort of boundaries and understanding and trauma-informed workplaces and they get slammed for it. They get slammed for caring about that. And honestly, we need more of that. Like we need spaces and places where people can show up as them full selves. And the only way you do that is by incorporating these principles. And to your point, it probably makes for a more productive workforce. If your ultimate outcome is more money, like when people feel supported and want to be there and are able to tell you what the struggles they're dealing with in their life. Like, that's the thing for me. When we have staff come to us and say, I'm struggling with this and I need X, Y, or Z, like, how amazing is that? Yeah. That they trust us enough. And we always talk about this with people who've experienced violence. Like, imagine having to tell your darkest secret out loud to someone you don't know well, right? That's, that's what our role is at the hospital after someone's experienced sexual assault. And they are hoping that we are going to hold that and respect them. And I feel the same way when people that we work with come to us and say, I'm having this struggle. I think I need X, Y, or Z. Like, how powerful is that that somebody trusts you enough yeah. to actually be able to think that you can help in some way?
1: Yeah, that's really been something you've taught me is there's value in just the disclosure, right? Like the fact that there is a space that's created where people feel like they can be that honest in spaces like at work where it hasn't always traditionally been welcome to be your full vulnerable self is is a really beautiful thing. And this concept of trust, you know, I'm like nerding out on this and sending Lindsay every article (laughs) about the neuroscience of trust that exists, but it is those little moments, right? And so the way that you respond um, matters and, and the boundary setting, like that is one of the key principles of like creating trust and that we set boundaries and then we stick to them, right? Like that's an opportunity as an employer, even if it's not a boundary, maybe you can respect for whatever, like core job function reason, the conversation about what can be a reasonable boundary can be really beautiful in creating trust. I also just want to flag, we'll probably talk more about organizational systems and structures and, pull from some of the vicarious trauma project that we've worked on, um, there's some really great tools and resources out there. But I mentioned Chris and how she's really great about thinking about these processing spaces. And when I think about trauma-informed principles, again, we want to feel understood. We want to, without having someone say to us, I understand, right? We want to feel it. We don't want to be told it. Right. And a lot of that comes from peer-to-peer structures and support systems and processing spaces and we're going to be co-hosting one of these processing spaces with a partner at the Women's Bar Association related to the Dobbs decision that just came out. And I just think it, it's another space where someone recently in my life has shared their own experience with trauma as a result of this decision and they've shared this publicly that the individual was sexually assaulted as a teenager and was in the south and didn't have a good support structure in place to seek an abortion if she had an unwanted pregnancy and just the fear like the yeah. it's the perceived trauma of like how am i going to navigate that and you know we'll be holding a processing space for folks in lots of different ways that have been impacted by the changing policies and landscapes of bodily autonomy but it's so tightly it's it's so closely tied to the concept of one of the core principles of trauma-informed approaches to anything is agency and choice. Yeah. Like how do we give individuals agency and choice to understand trauma is common and it's unique. And you know in your unique lived experience, your identities, what you need to move through this. Yeah. I looked at Lindsay um, as if I was asking. I a was question, like, nope, <laughs> I got nothing. That was so powerful. So I've been talking with Lindsay a little bit about how there was an interesting article, AMA martin and stephanie martin put out called to handle increased stress build your resiliency i'm constantly thinking like what can we do to innovate resiliency and Lindsay and i have been joking because um we did a training with our local OEG and around like trauma-informed prosecution and we were talking about resiliency strategies and laughter and animals and we've just been sort of brainstorming like what do those little daily things look like that we can do better Lindsay, you had mentioned too um, that one thing we didn't dive into in the podcast as it relates to laughter, this is like me connecting the dots, is like how do we reshape through this conversation our expectation of how someone might show up in front of us when Mm -hmm. they've experienced trauma? Because we do have this kind of baseline societal expectation that they'll be sad or crying or distraught, disengaged, bad height, like all these things um, that may look very different than how someone really shows up in our life. Do you want to talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah. And, you know, if I have talked about this before, I always talk about this, but laughter is one of those responses in a traumatic event that I find so fascinating. One, because I do it in my own life um, in moments where I have experienced trauma or perceived trauma, stress. And I've seen portrayals of it in like TV shows and things where it's it's funny right but it is a real response that people have and there's some research on it about why people do it I think it tends to be women I think women can probably make an assumption about why in a traumatic event especially maybe if you're being threatened something's out of your control right a societal response is to laugh to sort of like diffuse the situation especially if it's a situation where there's the risk of sexual assault or physical assault or something like that. But I think the most important takeaway I can say is that it's going to look different for everybody. And you have to just remind yourself that because in the moment I have found myself when someone is telling me an incredibly traumatic experience and reliving it, whether that be at the hospital or with the police, that I will sometimes assume that they should have a certain response. And and they don't, right? And just saying to myself, like, right, this is okay. You know, having somebody be incredibly stoic when they describe Mm -hmm. jumping out of a moving car to get away from a a person that caused them harm is okay. That that is the way that their body's processing it. That trauma's going to look different on everyone. And that's hard to remember in the moment when you expect somebody to have a certain reaction, but it's allowing space for it is the is the most important thing and not
1: shaming or judging them for the way in which they respond? And those are really good reminders because one of the key elements of why the why for us in this conversation and podcast for you all um, that are part of this experience is we want to give you our own lessons learned in this work to really help you understand how can we show up in our lives in a more trauma-informed way. Lindsay, if you could like give people like a few key takeaways of what to do differently the next time someone shares or we observe someone, I'm going through something traumatic. What would those things be?
2: Well, you can probably guess from the beginning of this episode that for Bridget and I, one of the main things is to show up and you don't have to have the answers. You don't have to know what that looks like, but just being there and holding space with a person. And I realized that's like holding space is a very, um, a, a term in our world that other people, but like literally just sitting with somebody and letting them feel their feelings, you're not going to say the right thing. You're not going to make it better. But being able to share that experience with someone, knowing that a person cares about them and is not going to judge them for the ways in which they're showing up in that moment, is so important. And it's so easy, right? I mean, it's not easy, but it is in terms of, like, you just go. Like, I think about friends who've lost family members and My response was, you just go. You just, you need to be with people when they're sitting in something that's hard so that they know that somebody cares about them. And that's easy for me to say. I understand it's harder to put into practice. And one of the things that we've talked a lot about is like, okay, so how do we show up for other people? Where are the spaces that this is happening? And you mentioned our um, vicarious trauma project that we have been doing. So talk to me a little bit about Bridget, how. You can show up for others, but how and in what ways do we process our own traumas? Like, how do we show up for ourselves?
1: Yeah, it's a really great question. And for us through the Vicarious Trauma Project, right, it was both assessing, like, what are the policies we have in place to be supportive, but also asking individuals, like, how are you experiencing this? What is your ability to be aware and recognize when you are experiencing a trauma response or perceived trauma response? And so it's both, like you said, knowing how do we show up, but also how are we aware of our own experiences? And of course, like Lindsay and I are not mental health professionals, right? We're not like Reese. We're not going to be able to uh, share sort of deep expertise and experience around the sort of... uh, mental health treatment and, and the best ways to sort of conduct uh, mental health therapy. And of course there are professionals out there. So my first takeaway is like, know who, know where you can go to get support if you need mental health. Also, I think for me, I've been thinking a lot about the discussion with Mona and, and, you know, what you shared about your dad and not, again, not just that physical loss, but the psychosocial loss as well. And my own experience, it's so interesting. You talked about the just showing up. I was thinking, I just happened to have a friend who like very close in in proximity to timeline, lost her first baby at 30 weeks. You know, I'm at work at the office. She Mm -hmm. calls me once and I don't answer because I'm at work. She calls again. I'm like, something's weird. And this was very unexpected, very different than my experience with Joy. But I had no idea what to say or do. I was like stunned. And honestly, I just drove to the hospital. I did exactly yeah. what you said, and it's so um it's so interesting when you haven't when you don't know that feeling, you don't know what to do right? You just sometimes do nothing, which is hard, yeah. not everyone, but sometimes like the friends you talked about during your loss with your dad. but because I knew that feeling, I knew to just go yeah and i I wish people just knew it is without really that simple,
2: yeah, without necessarily having to experience the trauma for themselves, it it would be so great. Like, that's why, that's what
1: we hope you walk away with from Ex- this. Exactly. And, and in processing your own experiences, part of it is like, is really being honest about like, why do I have a hard time when someone shares this or when I'm observing this happen? And I think a lot of that does go back to sort of this concept of distancing. And I like, to talk about it. And I've talked about it before in this podcast, because for me, the distancing is a societal narrative that owning and being honest about hard suffering, about trauma is weakness, is vulnerability. And I, I recently had um, one of our managing attorneys, she forwarded me this article. Again, I'm getting so many like cool connections, just people listening to the podcast. But it was um, from the morning in the New York Times, and I think it was published about um, June 23rd, somewhere around there. And it was actually about the Ukrainian, uh, you know, experience related to the war. In this article, what it talked about is how we know that trauma can be more likely to be compounded when it is an individual experience where we don't feel like other people know that feeling. Mm -hmm. But in larger um, shared community traumas like we've talked about and on, on the podcast, that sometimes that support network is there to make us more able to have strategies and coping approaches that allow us to build resiliency. And I think about what you talked about in your experience. You had those friends that knew how to show up, and I was like, wow, so the the loop here is like you can have an individual trauma experience, but when you have people around you that show up in a way that make you feel understood, mm-hmm. It feels more like that community experience that you're not navigating alone. Absolutely.
2: There's a survivor that you and I have worked with who has shared that when they went to group therapy, they heard other people say things that only they thought they had experienced and how powerful that was, right, in the shared experience to know that other people have felt or thought the same things that you have and that they have the the bravery and the ability and the the moment and space to say those out loud so that you can understand that it's a shared experience.
1: Oh, yeah, I love I love thinking about that. And I think also um, I was telling Lindsay that I heard in a news article I was listening to on the way here. Someone used the term like we've seen a lot of gains, but at what cost? And I was thinking about trauma and I was thinking to myself, we do get a lot of really beautifully resilient skills out of knowing that feeling, right? Knowing how to navigate future threats being very perceptive about like our brain is rewired to really help keep us safe and alive. And there's a lot of like benefit that comes out of that. But it had me asking like those gains come at what cost when we aren't, when we're holding that alone, shifting just a little bit, In that conversation, I I came in with Lindsay, like, oh, there was this thing that made me think about trauma. And you said, well, I've been listening to this book. Yes. Wow. I got to talk about that. Um, So,
2: this awesome book, and I always say I'm reading, but I'm using air quotes um, because I listen to books and I realize people have feelings, strong feelings about listening versus reading. But I've been listening to this book called East Coast Girls by Carrie Kettler. It's about a traumatic experience that these People have and how it impacts their full lives. But she has this just such beautiful quote. And it felt like perfect timing for this last episode at the end, where she talks about that the interesting thing about trauma is not that you experience it, right? It's more about maybe that. So the quote is maybe that there was beauty, not in the suffering itself, but in the depth of intimacy it fosters with other people. And, you know, we always talk about this is that. Trauma makes people resilient, but we don't ever want people to go through trauma. And it's not, you know, you don't ever want to silver line that experience for someone. And so it's this really complicated thing. But she just said it so beautifully that, like, it's the depth of the intimacy that you have with other people. Now you have to assume that you have those other people or that yeah. people in your lives have the skills and tools to show up. And um, I know Bridget has this really interesting tidbit about trees and the the other thing that I they talk about in this book that I love because I love sea otters, is they talk about how, like, you're tethered to people, right? There are people in your life, hopefully, that can show up and be there for you and all of the experiences you have, and that when sea otters sleep, you, they hold hands so that they don't float away from each other. And it's just such a beautiful imagery for how we think about the ways in which we can support folks in trauma is that you're the, you're the person sea
1: otter. Yeah. I love that. And and we were talking about how sea otters are very complicated, just like (laughs) humans and that they have these really sweet moments. And for me, it is the trees I've, I've shared with folks in my life that there's this fascinating new, newer research about trees that we used to think they competed for like light and resources. And as we started to study what's underneath, this is to me like the whole point of like who we are on the inside, right? When we study the, the roots of trees, we find they're actually very collaborative. They move their roots. They, they take up less nutrients when they sense a tree root next to them is suffering and is struggling. And I'm like, man, what if we could just be more like sea otters and trees, right? Like that's, that's the takeaway. But I think in kind of what can you expect next? We're, we're ready to close out. We're going to have a little break and tell you hear from us again next summer. That doesn't mean you can't reach out with ideas and suggestions. We're certainly wanting people to feel like you are a part of this. If you have ideas of guests or Um, anything really questions, thoughts, um, concerns, send them our way. But what you can expect next is that we are going to try in a very intentional way to narrow the distance between the societal narrative of what is the ideal human experience? What is it? What should it be with what is the reality? And what does it mean when we know to be human is to know suffering? And often that includes experiences of trauma. I was recently listening to an older um episode of Unlocking Us, my, my girl Brene Brown. We started with her, we might as well end with her. You know, she talks with Viola Davis, and in that conversation, I just saw this thread of the distancing from trauma. And Viola's talking about how you as a, a person who's known and survived trauma, um, how are you supposed to feel beautiful when no one around you is telling you that? Mm-hmm. And to me, that was the concept of distance. Like to know trauma is to know that feeling and you know who you are. You look in that mirror and know what where you've been, what you've experienced. When everyone around you is sort of in the societal narrative saying those things make you vulnerable or weak or not allowed to be named, are not validated, how can we look and know, truly know who we are and feel like that's acceptable and okay in a society that's creating distance between that reality? So we're going to be thinking a little bit more about this. Concept of narrowing the distance, and for me, that is a little bit lens um, about drawing connections. From this season, we talked to to guests who were in known, expected right. places, places where
2: you would think that they see or experience trauma,
1: right? It, whether that's in proximity or or you know just in in their lived experiences. But what comes next for us is thinking about how we can have unexpected conversations was really what I like to refer to as like the unsung heroes who are showing up, like Lindsay was describing about in ways that you would never expect. And for me, um, you know, with the terrible mass shooting in Uvalde. I saw the man who was making like really personalized caskets for these little kids. And I thought that is an unsung hero that nobody would think. Let's go to folks who are planning funerals and services in my own experience, when we had to take joy to the funeral home, I had like this very brief interaction with this woman who was so compassionate Yeah. and I will never forget her. It was this tiny little blip of my experience, but she was one of those, we have a really funny story. Actually, my husband and I, um, just like, just, just weeping and holding this woman we just met. And yeah. it was just a really beautiful, um, memory, but she was this, person that showed up out of nowhere, I will probably never see again, but made me feel understood and how she was, you know, being in that experience with me. We want to talk to those folks. Um, You know, I was in a program with a woman who works here at the Washington Post and they recently got an award for their coverage of January 6th. We've talked about those that are telling the stories of trauma. Those are often the unsung heroes. Absolutely. I mean, and I think about it and you and
2: I have talked about this maybe on the podcast before, but when my dog, we had to put him down a couple months ago. And when I was talking to the vet while well, he was like getting acupuncture, cause we were, you know, trying to ease his pain about how much trauma vets hold that the folks that care for our pets, we know, you know, maybe we've, we've said this, but they have one of the highest mm-hmm. death by suicide rates of any profession. And so f- those are the spaces where. We want to shine light on the fact that there are folks out there who experience and hold trauma for others in ways that you wouldn't think about. There's this memory that just sticks with me after the mass shooting at the Navy Yard. And, you know, this isn't necessarily unexpected, but I've never been able to stop thinking about the way in which this trauma must have impacted the folks that had to process crime scene afterwards, and it took them all night to process it. And the thing that they said was so hard was that people's alarms started going off on their phones the next morning as they were processing this crime scene. And that is one of those things where I'm like, how does somebody carry that? And we don't talk about it, right? It's these little moments of trauma and stress
1: and just... And then the next day when that alarm goes off, like, the brain is tied, has tied right. that to, Right. yeah.
2: Yeah, and so we say all of this and appreciate you all coming along on this ride for, with us because Bridget and I love talking about this, and we think it's so important. We want everybody to care as much as we do, but we also want you to, to get involved and tell us. So how, how can you engage with us? Well, if you have thoughts, ideas— on, um, stories that we should tell or explore, let us know. And we're just going to share how you can do that with us.
1: Yeah. I'm happy to first, you know, as Lindsay said, we always want to hear from you, uh, regardless of if you feel like you're in the space or not, like our whole point is to make everyone feel seen in this experience understood. So you can do that by sending an email to podcast at nvrdc.org You can also just tag Traumatize, remember that's T-I-E-S, and tag at NVRDC on Twitter or LinkedIn. And I also just want to close out the season of Traumatize by saying we're so grateful to all of you for tuning in to our freshman season of the podcast. There's so many different things you could be doing um, with your time. And so just uh, giving us a little bit of it to hopefully show up uh, in a way that you feel is empowering and helpful to those around you is really beautiful for us. And we really hope to see you at the next season. Of course, you can subscribe, rate, review, Traumatize podcast, wherever you listen. While this is a passion project of ours, we also want to make sure that it's helpful to you. So make sure, like Lindsay said, you let us know how we can do better and ensuring that we are sharing the importance of trauma-informed practices.
2: And finally, as you hopefully already know, this podcast was created by the Network for Victim Recovery of D.C. We are a D.C.-based nonprofit providing free, holistic, and trauma-informed legal and advocacy services to survivors of any type of crime. As part of our services, we've been providing free, trauma-informed education trainings to professionals across industries, and we are honored to do this work. And we ask if you enjoy this podcast and would like to support the continuation of our goal to spread trauma-informed methodology, that you consider making a donation to NVRDC at
0: nvrdc.org.
1: And we'll see you next season for more Untangling.
0: This episode of Traumatize is over, but this podcast is just one of our many resources. NVRDC welcomes all survivors of crime and their supporters. So please visit us at nvrdc.org to learn more about how to access our trauma education and how to partner with us to create survivor-defined justice.